Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. My name's Mike Walker, and I'm here with my good friend Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm quite well, thanks, Walker. How are you? Overly excited. Why am I excited? Because it's summer here in Canada. This is where we move from our igloos into our summer home. We send our pet caribou up north, which is harder on the younger children, because they don't re- understand that they will be back in the winter. I'm going to miss Elsie very much. It's true. She's my only friend. And we park our skidoos, get our cars out of storage... All this is quite easy due to our diet of 70% maple syrup and 60% Tim Hortons coffee. You might say, Mike, your math is wrong, but up here in Canada, we do math different. You're also forgetting the 15% well blubber. This is also true. All right, on the subject of being different, we're going to totally mix things up this week, and we're going to talk about the games we played this week, then into the news, our feature game of the week, which is The City of Kings. And then our topic this week is an interview with the designer of Spirit Island, Eric Royce. So what did you play this week, Mark? Well, we played a game of Kemet, and we've talked a lot about Kemet here on the podcast about how it's probably one of our favorite dudes-in-a-map games, at least insofar as it addresses some of the common problems in multiplayer conflict games. So we've talked a lot about that. I just wanted to bring it up because you have some increasing concerns about some of the tiles. Most of the time when we play, you seem to go for the Death Hippo and pump that Death death Hippo hard. I I think that was the first time I had the Death Hippo. I think I normally have concerns of the Death Hippo. Oh, but now that you've purchased the Death Hippo, you think it's perfectly balanced. No, not at all. (laughs) Quite the opposite. It was mostly a purchase to stop anyone else from getting it and just to see if someone that usually loses can win with the death hippo anyhow i've been curious to see if there were any proposed alternatives to the death hippo because i'm not necessarily certain that it's overpowered but it does seem to have an outsized influence on the game whenever anyone buys it in commit the sheer point scoring opportunities are sufficiently huge that any fight in which it's involved seems to take on a, a perverse aspect which in, to, to a certain extent is interesting but to another certain extent is unfortunate but Still enjoy Kemet, even with concerns. I'm going to be keeping my eye on the Death Hippo, which is probably the safest policy generally. It's so true. It's it's made me reconsider expansions as a whole. I also just got Mystic Veil Conclave in, which is going to have room for a whole bunch more expansions. And the question I'm asking myself, when is too many expansions too much or, or how many expansions? So I think it might be something we talk about later. In Kemet, they've brought in another pyramid like normally you have three pyramids which is white blue and red and with the expansion they brought in a black pyramid and i've just i just threw those powers in right away i've never played with any of the other expansion which is a subject in on itself like when you're normally teaching new players kemet anyway is there a chance that you're even going to be able to play with this new part anyway moving on it was a great game what i played this week i finally got it's an old not really an old game but older and well-versed, and I've never had a chance to really play it that much. It's Castles of Burgundy. 
and the more I play it, the more I love it. It's pretty well, you're building your little tableau up. Every time you place a building, it triggers a special power, and you sort of, like, try to manipulate an engine that way of trying to get the most actions. And it has a mechanism which I feel is becoming my favorite one, where you need to really understand what it is that is important to you and grab it before the other players can. It's one of these games where you have to get buildings before other players do and know what is going to help you the most and work towards getting it before someone else does. Just a question, how long have your games been? Too long, because I think you put that bug in my ear that it's too long and made me overthink it. But No, it's my sincere concern. I mean, I remember Castles of Burgundy being pretty good. It's probably one of the better Stefan Feld designs. It's it's much less point-mongering than a lot of his other stuff. But my experience with the game is that it's reliably in excess of two hours, which is generally not what I'm into for a game that's more or less a reasonably straightforward Euro optimizer. Exactly. And the fact that there's no increasing per turn or anything, you know what I mean? There's no, it's much, it's the same thing over and over every turn. Cutting off a turn, I don't think would, do too much except for the fact that some of the scoring relies on filling your tableau more so unfortunately it's not an easy fix that way but i do think it goes on a bit too long another game i tried was 878 vikings invasions of england this was by academy games which has a uh, which had a series uh, birth of america which had a, a game about the seven years war a game about the war of 1812 a game about the american revolution and now they've got the birth of europe which is starting off with this game which is about the viking invasions of england starting in 865 going to 878 I've had some problems with their previous games. I wanted to like War of 1812 a great deal, but I felt that the random activations in a five-player game where it was three players against two players really didn't work. It's theoretically possible for one side to get six activations in a row, which is redonkulous. Even four activations in a row is, is, is far too many in a game like this. But 878 is just a four-player game, two players against two players, two Vikings against two English players. I, re- I I thought it was fun. It was nice. It was relatively streamlined, relatively quick, relatively fast-moving. And the sides are asymmetric in a very straightforward way. It has a great dice system from all the other Birth of a games, which I, I really like. Sides have different numbers of dice, and the dice have different results, so you get different notions of mass and quantity of troops. It's very asymmetric in terms of the positions. One side is the attacker and needs to constantly be keeping up the offense, and one side is the defender with more brittle positions, but they need to be holding off the, the tide. I had a good time. Didn't try any of the expansion modules, of which, it being a Kickstarter, there are roughly half a dozen. Apparently, some of them are very, very highly regarded. I'm interested in getting it to the table again and trying it again. That said, my my understanding is that your impression of the game was very negative, Walker. Not overly negative. After you said, for, I quickly, re, not totally reconsidered, but for what it is, like you said, you know, it's the quick back and forth. And for what it is, I think it really does what it sets out to do. It's just, the, it's a lot of randomness. Like, I, I didn't even consider the random turn order and... If you're playing the English, the Vikings can attack anywhere along the line. So you have no idea where they're coming from. You have no idea in what turn order they're going from. You have no idea what cards they're going to get. And then you're going to throw dice on top of that. It just doesn't seem that there's much planning out that you can do, like, you know, in order to try to minimize the damage because you have no idea where the it's going to come from. But that's, it's only one play. So I, I need to play it more to, un, to see if there's a way to... Mi- to litigate that randomness. I would be interested in hearing your impressions after you had a chance to play as the Vikings. And I would very much like to try to play as the English because, again, the sides are extremely asymmetric in terms of board position. Oh, no, definitely. My my views are totally from the English side. The, the Viking side, you can totally... Because you get to decide where you're attacking from and, and you get to see the, you know... I think it'd be a much different game, for sure. I got to try the latest iteration of One Deck Dungeon. This is a standalone expansion called Forest of Shadows. I've talked about One Deck Dungeon before. One thing I want to stress about Forest of Shadows 
is that when I played One Deck Dungeon, it's light, it's quick, it's simple. I just had a background assumption that the universe of possible effects in the game was relatively small. And Forest of Shadows really blew my preconceptions apart because there's a lot of really interesting new powers and effects that happen in the game. They're a little bit more gamerly than the base game, so I definitely encourage people to start with the base game. But if you think that the one-deck dungeon system is limited or has small horizons, I would encourage you to take a look at least at some of the cards of Forest of Shadows because they do some really interesting things. And I was very, very impressed at the design work in a system that I thought had, as I say, was relatively narrow. Chris Chesek, who is a personal friend of mine, full disclosure, has plans for the system. He's going to be doing other stuff. He's going to be locating it to other genres. I'm very much looking forward to that because he's really demonstrated what this kind of framework can do. And so I'm looking forward to see the future. Last thing I want to talk about real quick and get some get your impressions on Walker is over the weekend, we played a bunch of games of Warhammer Underworld Shadespire because we played in a tournament. And I was somewhat concerned going in that six to nine games of Shadespire back to back to back was going to get really tiresome because generally speaking, even my favorite games, I don't necessarily want to play two games in a row. It's very rare that I'm interested in in playing something in succession. I know a lot of people, after learning a game for the first time, they say, oh, let's set up again and try it again. Usually, even if I have a very, very positive experience, I'm like, no, 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 let's let's go do something else. Part of that is, of course, because I'm a jaded gamer with a large collection and no other jaded gamers with large collections. In a tournament setting, sometimes it really grinds. And I've, I've done tournaments of Infinity, and that was okay, but I really adore Infinity. And I was worried a little bit. I was I was pleasantly surprised on that score. Part of it was the company. I knew a lot of the people there, and it was good to to spend time with them. And some of the other pe- the, the new people were very nice too. The faction variety certainly helps. I played three games against three different opposing factions, and that helped change things up a bit. And uh, the games were all close, which also helped. So it wasn't just you know procedurally going through the motions of either getting crushed or 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 massacring somebody. The uh, the way it was set up, the way it was adjudicated, I'm not entirely certain about how it was. I have a very strong actually talking about this with people has has really illustrated how people approach tournament systems with very different very strong assumptions about what ought to be rewarded. I have a very strong assumption that wins ought to be given a very very high priority. And strength of schedule, namely the people that you beat. How many wins did the person you beat have should be given priority. And then after that, maybe margin of victory. And then very, very at the very bottom, your overall score. Because quite frankly, I'm concerned about things like collusion, like sitting across from from an opponent saying, well, I need this objective and you need that objective. Let's just stay out of each other's way. I'm also concerned about the effect that it would have on deck building. If you know that overall score matters a whole lot, you might be encouraged to build an all or nothing deck that's very high risk, high reward that could score you a bajillion points if everything goes well. Whereas I think in a two-player competitive game, the focus should be on, you know, wins. Just, you know, and a win of a low margin, you know, beating somebody six to four, I think should be given more priority than if you lose and you scored 15 points. But anyway, I've been talking to a lot of people, and a lot of people look at me when I start laying this out, and they, they squint at me and say, really? That's terrible. You're obviously wrong. So I'm, I'm curious about reactions about that, and I'm curious, Walker, about your reactions to the Shadesbire tournament. Your system seems much more interesting than, than what had happened. I'm just glad I came out of it not falling back into the you know the term, tournament mindset of being overly competitive and worrying about losing, and I really, like you said, the the different armies and how people use cards differently and the combinations of cards. There were some new players there and you could see like the one guy I played as soon as he made the click that it's not an actual 
miniature game that's an actual card game when he saw how a deck worked where you just concentrate you look at your hand and you play towards the strength of your hand as opposed to the strength of the figures that i'm pretty sure i could be wrong maybe that's not what shadespire is but i really feel that's the strength of shadespire is the cards i agree i'm glad he had a good time I'm going to be inquiring as to a little bit more detail about how the tournament is set up, not because I'm super competitive, but just because if I know that it's being adjudicated in a way that's going to make me play in a way that is less fun, I don't want any part of it. So the local store is going to be holding another tournament in a couple months, they said, and I'm just going to know on the outset what standards they're using. So maybe I'll participate again, maybe I won't. If I don't, I'll probably come by and help just run the thing. That's why I want to run this through my head a couple times because back when Games Workshop started the tournaments up, that's pretty well when everything went into storage. Like I had, it would be easier to rhyme off the armies I didn't have for fantasy than it would be to rhyme the ones I did have. And I had several 40K armies as well. But when the tournament scene started up, it was almost like a year after that, everything went into storage and I haven't seen it since. We used to have a lot of fun playing it. We used to manipulate stuff, you know, no magic or change this or change that, only use these. And I really feel for our group, and that was it wasn't just me and my group, it was almost in our, our entire group. Like it changed my whole gaming night from a 40K miniature gaming night into a board game night, right? So it completely wiped out the Games Workshop product for our group. I'm interested to see if that happened to anyone else and I'll put more thought of it and see if we can come up with a topic of... Are tournaments a good idea or not? On to the news. On to the news and why it really doesn't matter. First off, a small bit of news about malfeasance and deception in our uh, little industry. So Acros Games published electronic versions of Steam and 8-Minute Empire. And there are versions on iOS, there are versions on Android, and there are also versions on Steam. And they've recently been kicked out of the Steam store and all their products have been yanked because apparently they were caught creating shill accounts to rate their products highly. And Steam does not like that. And Valve will punish you if they catch you doing that. And, you know, they're a relatively small developer, so this this certainly can't be good for their bottom line. There's some question about what this is going to do to their adaptation of Istanbul, which is going to be their next product uh, project. We've been covering a lot, or I've been paying a lot of attention to recent... Uh, nefarious goings-on in our little industry. And I find it uh, very unfortunate that as we undergo the sort of growing pains, I'm wondering whether board games are kind of sort of going to undergo the kind of growth development that video games did about 10, 15, 20 years ago, or whether we're going to stay in our own little niche. Obviously, we're not going to be as big as video games, but, you know, the video game market kind of matured as its consumers did, whereas we still very much have the mindset of hobbyists running hobby businesses for other hobbyists. Asmodee's acquisitions notwithstanding. And I don't know where developments like Acros Games' uh, malfeasance really falls into that, but it's certainly an interesting development, and I'm going to be paying attention to what happens going forward. My one and only news item is X-Wing 2nd Edition, and not the fact that my part of the news is not going to be the fact that X-Wing 2nd Edition is out, is the fact that I didn't un- I didn't realize that there's so many X-Wing players that have never played a Games Workshop product before, <laughs> and don't realize that this is how... Mark has different views on it, I think, or different opinions, but I feel this is how a a game keeps fresh and current and shows that it's being supported is by continually changing. And and people who have played Games Workshop products knows that this happens all the time. They drop entire things, put out a new edition, and you have to spend a bunch of money to, you know, bring it up. Not only does this bring in new players, but it also, you know, invigorates the game and brings people back to the table. In my opinion. 
not even necessarily just Games Workshop products, but even Fantasy Flight has been making second editions of its stuff for quite a while now. It's almost inevitable. Mostly I take this as a sign, a further sign of Fantasy Flight not being able to handle a meta properly. You know, competitive meta evolves as new things come in and what was very strong, might it might get reduced in strength just to keep things fair and fun for everyone involved. And normally in metas, what you can do is you can tweak things here and there, maybe a corrected card here or there, maybe uh, a slight alteration of how a skill works. Fantasy Flight, for whatever reason, in certainly in terms of how it manages X-Wing, seems to just want to take a sledgehammer to things. They careen wildly from overpowered to useless and back again. And the one positive development in X-Wing 2nd Edition is at least now all the changes are going to be digital. There's no, they don't, they're not going to need to reissue new cards all the time, or at least in theory, at least until X-Wing 3rd Edition comes out or another fix pack needs to be released because they made something in cardboard that was horrendously broken. But now they're going to be able to issue modifications because it's all going to be done through a, a, an app in order to build your forces. And so some things will cost different point values on different ships because it's not just a card that you attach to a ship it's a little thing you slot into your app and so on the face of it all the rules changes i've seen are for the good i stopped playing x-wing because the i wasn't having a good time because the way to do well in x-wing is to prevent your opponent from being able to play you either fly to their back uh, their back arc and they're not able to shoot you and you just constantly manipulate things that way which is fine it, it, it requires skill but it wasn't to my taste or you constantly overload them with stress and negative status conditions so they're not able to do anything properly that way that and the, the way attack dice and defense dice work i don't like much at all i think armada is a far far better game not that i play that so, look, the rules changes are all for the good. I don't like the way they're how they're rolling it out. If you're uh, if you're a reasonable, reasonably omnivorous X-wing player, you're going to have to drop three hundred bucks right off the top just to keep your things playable, which is a little ridiculous. I think they could have been a little bit more judicious with how they were updating things. I again will point to Infinity. Infinity is now an almost fifteen year old game. It's undergone three editions. And if you were an early adopter and started at the beginning, you will have paid $0 for any of these rules updates ever through unit erratas, which have been minor, but sometimes significant, through rules changes, which have been very, very significant for what they haven't charged you anything. The only thing you've ever given money for Infinity for, if you wanted to, was pretty books with fluff, which, again, purely optional, or pretty figures. Fantasy Flight, on the other hand, you're... Every time there's a rules update, you're going to have to pay for it. And even when they are added cards, and they would do this all the time, they never had any program whereby you could get errated cards from them. You were always expected to print them out, which is a little obnoxious and sometimes even incompatible with their own tournament scheme. But So I've got no problem with the rules changes. I don't even really have any problem with rules updates. I just wish that Fantasy Flight, or indeed games with an evolving competitive meta generally were a little more thoughtful on the outset about how to minimize the financial cost and transitional burdens for the players going forward. And just because Games Workshop does, does it worse doesn't mean it's okay for Fantasy Flight to do it this way. True. They didn't always do it worse. I, I, recently, I've been thinking back, Games Workshop used to, like in their White Dwarf magazine or other ways, they'd print out their erratas or their changes to the rules. They'd print them out in the format of the rule book. So you'd actually cut them out and put them in the rule book. So it'd be a you know a permanent change. And I don't no company does that anymore. It's it's odd. Final bit of news, and this is going to be a rare shout out for a Kickstarter project. I normally don't do this, but friend of the show, Trey Chambers, has a uh, Kickstarter out for his game Imperial Spells and Steam with Level Ninety Nine Games. I'm a big fan of Level Ninety Nine Games. Trey Chambers is a great guy who listens to the podcast. So go ahead and check it out and see if it's a game for you and uh, consider dropping them some money if it looks like something up your alley. All right, on to the feature game. 
which this week is a game that is back on Kickstarter. It is The City of Kings, so it's had its first Kickstarter, and now it's on again. It has nine days left as of we're recording this, so it's good to check it out. I've looked at the pledge levels, and they seem all very reasonable. So The City of Kings is from the pedigree of Euro adventure games. For a while, back before the heyday of cooperative or even competitive dungeon crawls, and we are in kind of uh, a glut of games of this, and I, for one, have no complaints whatsoever. But for a while, all that you really had if you wanted an overland adventure game were uh, maybe you could go back to the old days of Talisman and, and convince yourself that you were actually playing a game rather than going through some sort of torture activity. There were a couple of games like Prophecy. We talked about that. Vlada Kavadal's early spin on the system. Return of the Heroes, I know for Euroheads for a long time, was pretty much all you had going for you. More recently, there's there have been some releases in this vein, like Legends of Andor. But by and large, the sort of Euro-optimization overland adventure thing has kind of fallen by the wayside. And so to a certain extent, the City of Kings feels like a throwback to those days. And I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. These are, as I say, basically optimization puzzles, and they're less combat-heavy than other games like uh, Too Many Bones or Assault on Doomrock, which are mostly about fights, which, again, is fine, but they tend to minimize the overland adventure aspect. If there is a map, it's usually just a token representation of various between-fight activities. In terms of the balance of moving around the map and fighting, I would kind of liken it a tiny bit to Mage Knight in that, you know, getting from place to place is a thing and you have to go and recruit things and and have to care about other kinds of resources. But it's not a very good comparison because Mage Knight is much more complicated, much longer, much more involved, much less of a clear clear Euro-inspired optimization puzzle than the City of Kings is. And as a result, as I say, in order to find direct comparisons, you really do have to go back to the pre-Descent days, back when we were still looking for a new sort of successor to things like Warhammer Quest. And we had these Euro games that were rough approximations of kind of overland adventure games. So what do we do in the City of Kings, Walker? So in the City of Kings, I can't help but to feel like it's like an anime. If people watch a lot of anime, it's like the super adventurer that comes back and has his own little retinue, and he's, like, super overpowered, and, you know, he has his own little gang, because that's what you are. You don't actually do anything. You're collecting the resources, but you don't have to do it yourself. You're sending out your little party, and you're, like, this overall commander. And unfortunately, you've lost the Great War, and now you've retreated back to the main city, and you're trying to defend it to the very last. Well, that would explain why in the third chapter of every story there is the beach episode where everyone shows up and swim. I thought that was weird, too. I was going to make the connection, but I just, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily (laughs) compare it to an anime, but it is a sort of fantasy post-apocalyptic. We lost the Great War. Evil has taken over. We're now slowly trying to rebuild our resources. And... To a certain extent, I think this might just be an excuse to get in what are basically pick up and deliver mechanisms. Because in The City of Kings, to my mind, you're basically doing two things. And it took me a few plays to really see what the game was stripped down. And, and to a certain extent, I think this is how successful it is at putting on the veneer. You are doing pick up and deliver stuff for acquiring resources and dragging it back home. More on that later. And you're, in, you're killing stuff. Those are basically the two things you're doing over the course of the game. And both of them are very, very simple, very, very clean. And the fact that it still feels like a fantasy adventure, even though much of the time you're grubbing for a couple of scraps of wood or fish, 
is, I think, a testament to how well the entire product has come together. Because as a whole, as a cohesive whole, the fact that it is a cohesive whole is a minor miracle. The moment the scales fall from your eye and you 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 focus on the individual little atomistic details, it's a wonder that it feels as much of an adventure game as it is. Does that make sense? It does. There's so many mechanisms in this game, but they all work so well. The only fiddly bits were sometimes during setup. Other than that, it ran very smoothly, and I really like how it all comes together for sure. Yeah, because the theme for me is a bit of a hit or miss. Uh, So in terms of the overall thematic presentation, it's not derivative fantasy, which as longtime viewers may know is sort of a bugbear of mine. I'm not a huge fan. Uh, So you can tell that it's not derivative fantasy because of the way it presents elves, for example. The elves are all literally decaying because of the their loss in the Great War. They're now sort of falling apart. They're all ashy. They're, and so they're not the sort of beautiful forest-dwelling kinds of things. So the world I find relatively good in terms of it being reasonably unique. You don't have a lot of the standard fantasy stuff, although the dwarves are just pretty standard dwarves, more or less. Uh, I don't like the way a lot of the theme is presented, because particularly when you're playing the story missions, the theme is presented in sort of a very clumsy, traditional fantasy game kind of way, which is here is some reasonably stale flavor text that consists of loads upon loads upon loads of proper nouns. And if you don't know or particularly care about parsing out all these little proper nouns, it's just going to fly right over your head and kind of wash over you. It's kind of a shame because some of the some of the little details and some of the little bits are good. They're just not presented very well. The It's presented terribly. I think the mechanism is fantastic because uh, you have a set of stories. They all interlink, even though they're presented terribly. But you don't have to change the map around. You have a set of tiles and it moves you around these tiles and it really makes a feel of sense of this community of this, you know, this area that you're trying to protect that, that has some history and meaning. And I think they do a great job of, of bringing it all together that way. The monsters, I think step up a little too hard at the end. Uh, we see, we seem to be exactly perfectly on the cusp while we're going through the game. And then we hit the hard monster at the end and it seems to be, uh, a little too hard of a hit up if that's what you're trying to get at. Well, actually I'm, I'm curious to hear about your feelings about the, how the monsters work thematically, because this is a topic that has received a fair bit of attention. I think rightly so, because the way monsters work in this game is they generate a certain number of special abilities and they generate a stat bar based on the number of players you have, how advanced the story scenario is, and how many monsters you've killed previously. Every monster you kill is going to be harder than the one before it, although their stats don't just proceed linearly. Sometimes they they change around a bit. And that part, I think, works very well. The, the trick is, though, that they're not represented by this is a level 9 orc or something. Instead, they're represented as being a, a member of a certain faction in this world. So they might be a member of the Knights of Facade, and you see the icon of the Knights of Facade. Or they might be a member of the Hand of Vesh, with the Vesh being the big bad guy. And that's represented by this, this, this icon. And some people found this a little thematically troubling because they have a difficult time wrapping their head around what exactly they're fighting. And I found, for what it's worth, that it actually works and it comes together and you can really envision the sort of badass terror that you're fighting if you do two things. Number one, if you have one person, and this is usually Walker, exclusively in charge of matching the creature's abilities with the appropriate 
template and trying to come up with something. So, for example, uh, a couple of games ago, we we played something that would stomp across the board and let out huge walls of fire, and you chose the sort of uh, mechanical-based tinkers. And so I had no problem. We didn't talk about this explicitly at the table, but I had no problem imagining them running around in these huge war machines that were just shooting out fire everywhere. And so suffice to say, it requires some work, it requires some buy-in, and it requires some effort. But I think if you do all that, it works pretty well. I think it works way better than the alternative, right? Like in Mage Knight, we're just flipping up yet another orc or any of the other games. We're just fighting the same generic thing over and over again. If you have the right mindset and, like you said, willing to put in a little bit of mental work, you can create this whole story in your mind and match these things up and create alliances. And, and you know, I, I like it way better. Yeah, so when when the game system gets out of your way and it's not just about flavor text, there you can indeed cobble there are the there are the bones there to cobble together something some pretty compelling encounters. Plus the fact that they tie in these names with the quests and the and the stories and the bosses and all these names that you put on all these monster cards, they usually all tie into the final story as well. So it's reminiscent to me vaguely of a game called Shadows of Malice by Jim Felly. Shadows of Malice didn't have any preset enemies. Every time you fought an enemy, you would just generate it. And the, the type of enemy that it was very often didn't have any game stat effects, but it mattered that you were fighting a fish monster or a slime monster or a tree monster or something. And then you would randomly generate some number of special powers. So you would end up with, say, a vampiric reptilian. And again, the uh, some people complained that this was, you know, oh, I, I want a picture of an orc standee that I'm fighting. And the response to that of people who appreciate systems like that is, no, just Put in the requisite small amount of work and you're going to get far more engagement out of the system that provides a greater plurality of monster types and, uh, you know, a little bit more novelty than the standard cookie cutter stuff. But again, you do have to put in that work. Otherwise, it's just going to be the set of numbers by itself. And then it's not going, it's going to feel far more like a spreadsheet than it is like an adventure game. The other part I really liked about is how they handled the cooperative part about it, how you're all on the same team and the fact that you all share the same experience track, you all share the same resources, and it really, the design part of it really cuts down and and helps it flow way better than these other games where you're, you know, dealing with all these cards. And the fact that all of the information is on your character sheet, you don't have these side decks of skills or anything else at all. It's all in front of you. You don't have to go rifling through stuff. You can plan ahead and you can see what's going on. I really like how that works. And you have to level up very cooperatively. In lots of other games like this where you level up your character, you can pretty much take whatever you want and expect to muddle through, even if it's a very, very hard game. The City of Kings, whenever you level up, you have to specialize. Our early games were blowouts. We didn't get very far at all. And when we first realized that, well, no, we can't just pick a a couple of stats here and there, whatever we feel like it to deal with whatever threat. We need to make sure that somebody is able to tank damage. We need to make sure that somebody has a very, very high attack stat. We need to make sure that somebody else is very, very good at acquiring resources. So there are all these core roles that the game expects your heroes to be able to do, and you have to be able to communicate with your partner when leveling up. Okay, this is what I'm taking, so I'm able to fulfill this specific task that we need. And that, I think, was a really good way of making, of individualizing the characters without forcing them down a particular path because any given character can do any given role. I don't find the character differentiation particularly good, but on the flip side, that does give you the freedom to specialize for whatever task you want to do or whatever task the group needs you to do, given the circumstances. For sure. And then when you do specialize, you're not going to fall into like your 
killing everything instantly because you pull these, these three different bags that you pull these monster abilities from and they're going to throw you this curveball every time that you have to deal with it. And the way they do the range and the, I guess you could say, line of sight is a really interesting way to manipulate the map and I really like that part of the game. It's another way in which if you stare too closely at it, the theme is going to fall apart. Monsters only ever attack orthogonal in orthogonal directions, so you can hide in a blind spot just by sitting out in the, in the diagonal, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's kind of necessary given the way the grid of the map works. Sometimes you have to let a monster go and rampage around the countryside or just sit there and, and fire off in its directions. They're basically artillery pieces most of the time. They're mostly stationary damage dealers in orthogonal directions. Sometimes the abilities mess with this, of course, but sometimes you're not in a position to kill a monster yet. You really need to just leave it alone and ignore it and hope that the map setup allows you to do that. Because this is uh, a game where very often you pull a monster and you look at it and say, this is completely unkillable, and then you manage to kill it. It really does force you to overcome the sort of sticker shock of looking at these these stat lines that appear uh, completely insurmountable. And even in contexts where a boss has destroyed us, because our win rate in the City of Kings is very bad. Uh, I've won a couple times. Uh, I don't know if you were playing with me during those times. And the bosses are no joke, and most stories culminate in a boss. And the difficulty step up is considerable. But we have made progress. Even when a boss comes out, we figure we're never going to kill this. Uh, one boss that we thought was going to be completely invincible, we, were, we brought down to one hit point. And that was very satisfying, even though, again, it massacred us. Don't mess with flame, poison, and frost spewing penguins, by the way. It's a nightmare. It, it's it's a bad scene. So, I, I mean, I like the difficulty. I like the, the, the fact that you're forced to figure out these apparently insurmountable optimization puzzles for combat. And it still kind of feels like you're, you're confronting a, a massive combat problem, which, again, is kind of surprising. Yeah, like when you level up, like you said adapting when you level up there's not just you know should i take this or this you have like at least five different stat lines you want to increase and they all seem equally important it's really neat so we've talking a lot about the combat let's talk a little bit more about the other element the resource allocation and generation bit and you talked a little bit before about how we are you know generals of an army and we have a retinue the fact that you have workers and you're going to be spending a lot of your time in in the City of Kings moving your workers and gathering resources with your workers, it's okay. I don't – mechanically, it's good. Thematically, I think it's passable. I don't think it's particularly compelling in an adventure narrative to be going out and getting a whole bunch of fish and then dragging it home. And it's also the case that the items that you do with fish are kind of absurd. It's like, yeah, I, I now have these – the sword that gives me a tremendous attack capability. Apparently in this game, swords are made out of linen. That's what swords are made out of. And fish lets you build armor and stuff. The more you look at it, the less sense that it makes. You kind of have to let it roll off your back and accept that this is a fantasy adventure, even though the game sometimes seems to want to fight you on that. I'm wondering, like, if you picture in your mind taking that mechanism out completely, there might be some instances where, like you said, with the timing of the monster, you want to just sit there and let him do his thing you're not going to be able to do much, right? So there might be turns where you're just not doing anything. So having this secondary mechanism and using it to, you know, get items or, you know, there's a lot of quests that say, hey, I'm this seer and I'm going to tell you your future as long as you bring me, you know, 15 fish. Seems silly, but like it gives you that other thing to think about, another way to, you know, decide which actions are the most important. It's also the case that the rules concerning resource allocation and where resources are, 
again, mechanically work, but thematically are such a hash that it make, makes it a barrier to entry. This is a rel- The City of Kings is a relatively simple game, but some of the things are very hard to remember turn after turn. The way it works is you send a worker who then gathers resources, and those resources, while the worker is carrying it, are unusable. You can do nothing with those resources. The resources have to be dragged back to the city. And then, when they're offloaded in the city, you then have to send your hero off to the shop to go buy things with the resources that are now way back in the city, because the shop isn't in the city. And it makes zero sense. None of these steps make any sense even remotely, but that's the way the game works, because that's how mechanically it has to work. So... I've had to, whenever I'm teaching this game to new players, that's the part that I constantly have to remind them over and over and over again. You know, they think they have to bring the resources to the shop because that's what makes sense because the shopkeeper wants the resources. No, no. Apparently it all works on credit. Your heroes have some weird credit card which debits your fish supply back at the old barn back at the city. It's a mess. It's a magic thing. (laughs) Sure, sure. And this is to say nothing of how incredibly luck-based a lot of this can be. Now, the core systems, again, are not terribly luck-based. It's relatively deterministic in plotting. But based on how the scenario works... So in the City of Kings, there are two different ways to play. You can play a story, which has about four to six chapters, and each of them has a victory condition, and you just go proceed that. Or you can play a scenario, and the scenarios are much shorter, and it's, it's kind of like one big chapter... Of, of a story. And so one of the, just as an example of something that could be a chapter goal or a scenario goal, could be acquire 30 wood. You know, bring 30 pieces of wood. Well, the map is randomly set up. And if the thing that gets you wood is on the other side of a pit or is on the other side of a big bad monster, this can be a lot more difficult than if the, the tile that gives you wood happens to be right next door to the city. In which case, well, go crazy. It's also the case that when you're acquiring resources, you do so by rolling dice, which is fine, except for the fact that if your rolls are really bad, you're going to summon a monster there, and the monster sits there and blocks any attempt at, at, at work. On the one hand, that's good because that shows how the resource gathering and the monster killing interact with each other, but on the other hand, it can mean that a bad string of results can really, really, really put you behind the eight ball. True. On the subject of summoning monsters, there's also another location where you can get quests, and sometimes when the monster comes out, the big boss monster comes out, you want to do a couple of these quests in order just to, you know, that last little level up to uh, defeat him. And then unfortunately, you've just happened to randomly flip the one that generates yet another monster and dun, 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 death. All right, so let's talk about the typical co-op mechanisms here. We've already talked about the randomness, which is the co-op's one and main thing. And the next is the timing. Everything's always a race. I think they put this into co-ops. I was thinking about this just in this particular game situation. They need to put these timing mechanisms in co-op because people tend to manipulate the system. Either they hang around and heal up to full or they manipulate the system somehow, summoning monsters and, you know, getting XP that they normally shouldn't. So, i.e., the designers have to put these timing mechanisms to rush, rush, rush all the time. And in this game, it's done with every time you die, you lose morale. When you get to zero morale, you're done. And also, there is a cool time of day dial mechanism. Every turn you go around, you switch to, you know, morning to early morning to afternoon to late afternoon. Every time it hits midnight, you lose a hope point. And when you run out of hope points, game over. Out of all the systems I've played so far, this rush mechanism seems the less stressful and not so bad. I agree. It gives you a time pressure, but you don't feel like you're just doing a race. You have a little bit of room to maneuver, and I do appreciate that. 
just to dovetail your general discussion about how this situates with other uh, co-ops, if you are particularly concerned about alpha gaming or quarterbacking, this game doesn't really do anything to prevent that. If you have a bossy player or people who are not particularly good at taking their own turns, one person can indeed just play everyone else's turns. And if you're playing solo, that's exactly what happens. You play with two heroes. So there's no hidden information, no hidden cards, no simultaneous play, nothing, none of the standard tricks to deal with alpha gaming. Oh, that being said, we haven't really talked about when a monster does summon, because I want to talk about it because I really think it's a cool mechanism. Whoever's turn it is that summons the monster, they get that monster card, and the monster only triggers at the beginning of their turn. So it's not as though everyone has a turn and then the monsters go. There's this cool timing that you can sort of manipulate around and really works well in this game. All right, all that being said, I kind of thought if I had no Descent or no Mage Knight or no other co-op adventure games, would would this be one that I would get first? Gloomhaven aside, of course, I really think this is the game that I would choose over all of those others. I'm a little bit conflicted about The City of Kings, to be entirely honest, because there's lots of clever bits, and I think I've been relatively clear that there are lots of things that I like, but there are enough thematic problems, and there are enough mechanical weirdnesses that I really feel like it's it's kind of getting in my way of fully appreciating it. I'm not a huge fan of grubbing for resources in the context of an adventure game. And yes, I, I recognize how it works in this context, but it, it, it's not really particularly satisfying or epic feeling. I like how the monsters work. I like how thematic the monsters are, but I really don't feel like there's any sort of overarching story because every time it, I'm told to read any of the story text, my eyes glaze over and I just, it, I don't find it particularly compelling. So... As a Euro-optimization adventure game, I think this is pretty good, but to a certain extent, I think that when it comes to Euro-optimization games, I'd rather play sort of a resource management game or something like Hansa Teutonica, and if I want to go have an adventure, I'd rather feel some, uh, play something with a little bit more of a grand scope involved, something like a Mage Knight or something like that, where Mage Knight, yes, mechanically isn't perfect and has a lot of, th- a lot of weird gears creaking and all that, but at least there's enough going on that the creaking gears don't really pull me out of the experience the way that it sometimes does with the City of Kings. So there's a lot of promise to the City of Kings and I enjoy it and it's relatively clean, but its cleanness in a way just serves to highlight the ways in which it's kind of a thematic hash. It's true. I do enjoy it. I'll play it more in the future, but at the end of the day, because of the thematic problems and because of the way that it presents the world in not the best light, I don't think I can really say that it's top tier. Gotcha. I am still looking forward to playing it again. And that is The City of Kings. So now we're going to give you a sort of digest of the interview that I did with Eric Royce, who's the designer of Spirit Island. Once again, full disclosure, Eric and I were personal friends back when I lived in Massachusetts. If there's demand, we'll possibly release the full, less edited interview and some other venue, but it's not really it doesn't really fit in our traditional episode format, so we'd have to think about how to how to do that. And I did cut out the bits where Eric told me where the bodies are buried, so you're not going to get to hear that at all. So with that in mind, we hope you enjoy the interview with Eric Royce. Eric, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for coming over. So just right off the top, why don't you introduce yourself and give our listeners your bona fides? My name is Eric Royce. Uh, I've designed a game called Spirit Island, which a few people have heard of. And uh, I don't know, I've been playing games all my life. I've been designing games since... Before I can remember, my parents tell me about lovely little roll-and-move concoctions I made up when I was five, and uh, 
Finally, I get to sell them. <laughs> well, you're actually kind of, uh, I wouldn't say bearing the lead, but Spirit Island is not your first or only published design, am I right? No. Uh, I have another title published called Fealty, uh, which has been published through Osmati Games. Uh, it is a sort of uh, uh, lightly themed abstract positional uh, territory control game. Uh, that and Spirit Island are my only two available for sale right now. We'll circle back to that in a minute, but let's talk about your more recent release. Sure. So how do you feel about Spirit Island's reception so far? I am immensely pleased. Uh, I, I made Spirit Island for a variety of reasons. Uh, and while I was developing it, I was always pretty sure that there would be other people who enjoyed it. But when I started work on it six years ago, seven years ago... I didn't have any idea if there would be much market for sort of heavier co-ops. So I was thinking, okay, maybe this will, you know, uh, maybe this will sell like a thousand copies or something. Uh, and I, uh, but since then, uh, not only has it become apparent that there are people who enjoy this, but I think the, the, that the number of people who, who play these sorts of games and have enjoy, enjoy them enough that they want to seek out things which are a little more intricate uh, has grown over the time. So uh, uh, it's doing phenomenally well, and I'm incredibly happy. Are there any surprising elements of the reaction, other than the, the success, which I think is well-earned, but have there, has there been anything in the market reaction or in consumer reactions that you found unexpected? I should briefly qualify my previous answer. The the fact that uh, some people were over the moon about it did not surprise me because during playtesting, so the, 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 the high end of the positive reaction was extremely high. Uh, and it actually spread via word of mouth to the point where people I didn't know were asking to do print-and-play copies. Really? And if you can imagine trying to put together a print-and-play copy of Spirit Island, that shows some dedication. But the other thing which I found surprising is uh, that the thing which caught me off guard was difficulty. Uh, the publisher and I both ran many, many tests at conventions uh, with first-time players, uh, with sort of hands-off, we're not advising them on, like, how to best uh, fight off the invaders. And on that, we observed somewhere between, like, a 70 and an 80% win rate on first-time games. Uh, and then it got out into the wild, and one of the very early video reviews uh, was by uh, Tom Bassel and the Dice Tower. Uh, Never heard of him. Oh, yeah. And, uh, the, uh, and, you know, Tom said that he really loved the game, except for its crushing difficulty level. And I was really? like... Really? Okay. Tom plays a lot of games. Uh, all right. And then other reports started coming in with a lot of people who just found it really, really hard. Hmm. But also some who didn't. And after, you know, uh, three to six months of, you know, sort of talking to people about it and some navel-gazing, uh, as far as I can tell, the simple act... There's a little bit of a, a selection bias in that, like, people at conventions are likely to be people who play more board games. But even, you know, people like Tom Vassell, who plays a bazillion board games, uh, uh, were, were getting stomped on. And it seems to be that the act of being taught in person uh, gives you some sort of almost subliminal strategy advice. I see. Uh, and so people who were learning from the rulebook were having a harder time than those who were taught in person. Uh, so Interesting. Starting the second printing, uh, we put in some, like, do you want to make the game easier into the rulebook, which I had previously thought was not necessary. Uh, but some people have said they really appreciate it. So, hmm. there you go. So, is there anything you'd change about the final product? You talked a little bit about the, the changes to second edition, but that was mostly driven by uh, fan feedback. But with the final box in hands, is there anything you wish could have been done differently? Or 
Uh, I designed and developed this over the course of five to six years, and I'd hope that I've learned something over those five to six years. You know, if I, if I look at Spirit Island, I go, oh, like, if I designed this today, would it be different? The answer is absolutely yes, uh, because I have grown as a designer during that time. Uh, I don't know exactly how it would be different because most of the areas which I'd mark are things where it's like, well, I'd investigate this, uh, you know, this avenue uh, and see if it bore fruit. Like, uh, what's one example of a drastic change which might, probably wouldn't pan out but might? Um, the energy, the distinction between energy and card plays, for instance, is something which, once you internalize, is very easy, uh, but first-time players occasionally will stumble over. And I've had some ideas like, oh, I wonder if you could maybe combine those and lower the granularity into this sort of other system, but that loses you some strategy in terms of whether you're pushing on one or the other, and it totally changes how innate powers work and their power scaling. And so it wouldn't just be a, like, it's not an isolated change that say, oh, the game would be better at its current incarnation with this change. It's the, if I were designing now, I'd go down that road and see if I could find an end point, which was at least as good as the current one. Um, and the answer might be no, like it might be, nope, you know, the way that which this not was fine, but, uh, uh, you know, it might be yes. So I'd poke down that avenue. Um, and there, there's a bunch of little things like that, uh, and where it's like, oh, I've had this idea in the interim. I would investigate that and see if it went somewhere. Um, there are, let's see, beyond that, um, I have, you know, we're making, you know, rulebook updates and wording updates and the very occasional piece of errata as we go through the different printings. Uh, I do have a little notes file, which I keep like, oh, if we... Um, uh, you know, if we ever get to do a second edition where we can sort of uh, make more breaking changes, uh, then here are some things I might do, which range the gamut from like, there's a, uh, if I change the shape on the ocean slightly, then you can tessellate the boards in one additional way, which I hadn't originally considered. Hmm. Um and there's one particular power where it's like, eh, maybe that should be fire instead of plant, uh, you know, like er er <laughs> everything from like the physical, the physicality of the components to like details on power cards where it's like, it's even if I decide, yes, it's not worth changing in a, in, in a simple reprint, but it's like, okay, yeah, I might, you can tinker with a game infinitely. Like you can always just keep on tinkering forever. Uh, and, you know, if you're good at what you do, some of those tinkerings will probably make the game better, just not very quickly. Uh, so, you know, it's it's better to get an excellent game out there and, and ship it than to have an excellent plus one game, which never actually happens. Well, let me te tease out one of those details. I yeah. think it's very telling that you would talk about changing the element on one of the power cards, because there are many, 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 many power cards, mm -hmm. and your attention to detail is such that you care about what the elements are on all of them. And I've seen you go through the process of that level of tinkering and that, uh, tinkering and that level of granularity. Why don't, why don't you, for our listeners who are unaware of this, because I was involved in it very mm -hmm. in a very peripheral way for a brief time, why don't you talk about your design process and the people that were helping you out with this? Uh, sure, I can, <laughs> I can do that. Uh, it's... it's... Uh, it's been on my mind lately uh, for reasons I can't go into detail about, but I am doing work on an expansion, so the fact that power cards are on my mind should not be super surprising. <laughs> uh, so if I'm doing, let's say that I'm trying to do a batch of new minor power cards. Um, the There's a whole bunch of different constraints which they need to follow, uh, and in addition to that, they should be fun. <laughs> you know, so, um, so I end up in this sort of, uh, one of my testers compared it to like, you know, this like 
five-dimensional packing puzzle where I'm trying to come up with a set of minor powers in particular are tricky this way because they're core to the game like every spirit is going to be accessing that deck that deck needs to be balanced and tuned in along a variety of different axes uh so uh i might first look at okay here are the some constraints which are going to be very difficult to fulfill like all right this group of power cards for game balance reasons element balance reasons really needs to have at least one power which has sun and plant and earth and water. Uh, and it also needs this other one, which has these three elements and a very particular sort of effect associated with it. Uh, so those are the, the incredibly hard to work with things. So I'll design those first. Then I'll dump in the effects, which I'm most enthusiastic about in terms of just raw um, interestingness, fun, thematic meat, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and... You know, I'll develop the elements and effects for those purely just 100% based on theme. And then I'll see, okay, how much space do I have left? And how is this set of cards skewed? Like, okay, all right, I have, you know, 20 out of the 30 cards I'm working on. Hey, there's no defense here whatsoever. That's going to <laughs> skew the minor power deck in, different, in, you know, in, in certain ways. Are those ways bad? Sit down and think about that for a while. Uh, and then, and once I've figured out where things need to go, then it's like, all right, now I have... Uh, nine cards in which I need these eight elements to appear this many times each, these pairs of elements to appear this many times each. I can't use these trios of elements. I'd like to use this trio of elements. Uh, I'd like at least three defend cards, one blight removal, uh, you know, two of this, five of that. Uh, and sometimes those constraints end up being impractical where it's like oh you know i have nine cards left seven seven of which need to have fire and seven of which need to have water well hmm. that means there's going to be an awful lot of fire water pairings and that's going to skew the deck okay i need to back up and change what i already have and so there's this iterative back and forth process uh which which goes into coalescing a set of minor power cards um and is this all theory crafting is this before other playtesters and developers get their hands on it oh yeah yeah this well it, well it's on every iteration. So, like, first I'll do this and then hand it off to, to, to playtesters and do development. And then it comes back like, oh, you know, this power card isn't fun. This one is broken. This one needs to be changed. You know, this one doesn't feel thematic. Uh, and then anything which changes, you know, some changes are fine. Like, you know, it's like, oh, this does two fear instead of one. Okay, that's not a problem. But if it's like, oh, this card really needs to be overhauled drastically, that may have ripple effects. And so... Uh, I'll usually let things break for a while, like, okay, this card isn't working, but we're going to wait until we have, like, seven, seven or eight other cards which aren't working so that I can revise them all at a go, because the revisions can play off of each other so that it still fulfills all the necessary constraints, and you don't end up with a minor power deck which has, like, you know, 30 moon cards and 15 plant cards, and people playing plant-based spirits are just, you know, out of luck. <laughs> This is going to be a very specific question, but I'm very curious. Uh, given the amount of pruning that I know went into this design, you know, mm -hmm. I can think of past changes, uh, past versions, and past cards, and oh, yeah. you know, all the way from details to fundamental rule systems that now no longer exist. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Was there one or, or or some number of kill your darlings moments where you had to cut something that felt particularly like a deep cut that you felt sad to see go, even though you knew it had to? Oh yeah, let me just think of which one. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's. Also, it's been a couple of years since I finished design on, on the original Spirit Island, and right. then it was five years of design before that, so uh, memory goes fuzzy in a couple of places. 
Well, here's a, here's one example which springs to mind off the top of my head, uh, where actually the 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 you know killing your darling ended up resulting in in a better design all round. Um, so as the game stands right now, when the invaders ravage, uh, when they harm uh, the land, they 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 are hurting both the land and the Dahan at the same time. The original game or the original prototype uh first they would end up sort of being expansionistic and fighting against the dahan and then if there weren't any dahan present then they would damage the land the i dahan remember took, that dahan took damage first uh this functioned but it resulted in a number of uh dynamics which were weird both from a, a gameplay standpoint and from sort of a, a thematic standpoint it resulted in the dahan becoming ablet of armor which was not what i was looking for uh and you ended up with boards which didn't blight didn't blight didn't blight and then blighted all of a sudden just all over the place uh and that wasn't good from a mechanical standpoint. So it's like, well, this is kind of socially reprehensible and mechanically bad. Let's change that. So I started playing around with it and the tried doing it the other direction. Uh, but that didn't always end up... That, didn't, that made counterattacking too easy if the land took damage first. Because even just soaking up uh, two damage you know, means that, okay, if there's a small invader force, which is fairly common in early game... Uh, then you have a Dahan there, the Dahan will survive, they counterattack, and it, the, everything became a little too easy. Uh, so then I explored the notion, which I really liked for thematic reasons, because it gave the Dahan more agency. Uh, the notion of having the Dahan sort of having a current attitude, a current stance, either bold or cautious. I remember that too, yeah. And, all right, you know, so they, uh, and they, I tried them starting the game off in both ways. Uh, and the idea was if they're bold, then they are going to you know, take damage from the invaders before the land does. And if they're cautious, they're going to sort of, you know, be hang back. They'll let the invaders expand as far as they can. And it's not until they're actually outright attacked themselves that they end up getting involved. Uh, and it added a sort of interesting switch. It was something which, you know, it affected the, the sort of strategic play of the game across the island. Uh, it was... Uh, interesting and engaging and one level too fiddly. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, particularly for teaching. Like, experienced players who just had to internalize that one rules change. You know, there was a card which flipped over so you had a visual reminder of how the, how the, what the Dahan were currently feeling. Uh, and, you know, and I, I liked that it brought their attitudes into the game. Like, had them on display. Like, here's how they feel about the current situation. Uh, I, I liked what it did on sort of a strategic and, uh, and, and tactical level. It made the, you know, the players think about like, oh, like, oh, if, if, if the invaders, you know, kill the Dahan over there, then the Dahan are going to be, you know, become demoralized and, you know, that's going to be bad. Uh, but it was just ultimately one thing too far, especially for first time players. They're just like, what? No, too much, you know, um, and it was on backing off from that and finally saying no. Uh, and uh, and to his credit, it was uh, uh, Christopher Bennell of Greater Than Games who who said like, you know, I think this really needs to to I th you know it's interesting, but I think it needs to go. And um, you know that was sort of like the nail in the coffin. I, I've been sort of like, uh, and he's like, no, I'm like, yeah, okay, you're right. <laughs> uh, but exploring afterwards, I uh, resulted in the current solution of they're fighting both equally, which is. You know, again, for first-time players, it, it's 
not as simple as A takes damage first or B takes damage first, but it means that the incentives of sort of the two worlds, like the sort of the, the metaphysical, spiritual, uh, ecological uh, world of the spirits and the flesh and blood, you know, firing guns at us, you know, in world of the Dahan, uh, align. Like, you know, the invaders are being equally aggressive towards both at the same time. And so the, the spirits in the Dahan are kind of on the receiving end equally, if differently. Uh, which works very well from a thematic point of view and also works really well from a mechanical point of view. So, huzzah, wins all around. <laughs> I'm going to ask a rhetorical question and you're sure. just going to have to take it because it's my damn show. Yeah. Um, do you want to hear the thing that I like most about that change, honestly? Sure. It's that... So let's talk about the theme for a moment. Mm -hmm. Because I, I really do think, despite its manifest virtues and qualities mechanically, and there are tons, I think really what separates Spirit Island out and makes it a true triumph is the way that it handles theme and the compelling narratives that come out of it. Thank you. And one of the ways... I, I You started with a leg up because you already started with trying to flip the standard narrative of many mm -hmm. a Euro game. You've talked about this before. And you and I have played many standard white colonialist Euro games uh, together anyway. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what I think what Spirit Island does, which a lesser hand wouldn't do, is you don't fall into any noble savage tropes. You don't fall into any sort of glorification or demonization of anyone or anything. And I think that the, the distinction that the way damage happens now, I think really uh, articulates that the Dahan are not defenders of the land in some sort of straightforward way. They're not mm -hmm. going to stand in front of the invader's ravage to protect you know, the sanctity of the trees and stones or whatever. Yes. It's, they are caught up in... Uh, of, of course they care about the land, but they also blight the land. At the start mm -hmm. of the game, mm -hmm. there are areas where the Dahan have already blighted the land mm -hmm. because, well, they're humans too. Or or the invaders, or just natural, you know, wildfires will blight the land sometimes as no, well. No, of course. Yeah. Of course. Spirits yeah. blight the land as well. It's The Dahan uh, are pretty good about avoiding it these days because they've been hanging out with the spirits for like 800 years. And, right. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not suggesting yeah. an equivalency yeah. with respect to blight, but what I'm saying is, mm -hmm. is that there's a strong implication that uh, the Dahan are just people too trying to live their lives. Exactly. And the way they sometimes don't get, get, get along with the spirits, mm -hmm. or sometimes the, the specific manner in which they get along with the spirits is indicative of that. The, the way that sometimes cards imply a degree of cooperation between the Dahan and the invaders mm -hmm. for certain ad hoc uh, purposes. Yep. Uh, the way that blight is not represented as, well, the land knew no blight, and then the white man showed up, and mm -hmm. then suddenly evil was introduced into the ecosystem of the island. Yep. The game avoids all of these things in very, very subtle ways. And I really think that that's part and parcel of... Uh, of the sort of moral grayness that you accept as, as just background reality for mm -hmm. human existence, even though you're only caring about a specific conflict in which we are antagonists and on a very particular side. Mm -hmm. And I've played a lot of historical concepts that should do stuff like that and don't. Mm. And so the fact that in what is very clearly from a, a more Euro pedigree mm -hmm. uh, co-op game that you're able to get that level of nuance, I think, is is ge a genuine triumph. Do, do you think I've mischaracterized some of your, your thematic trappings? Or am I just take, putting uh, my own gloss on it? You certainly, uh, it's certainly something I've tried to do. Uh, how theme is something which uh, a designer can pour in uh, all the theme they want, but it is ultimately something that is read by the audience. So it is up to each individual person to decide sort of both how well and how the theme speaks to them. The, uh, I don't think, I don't think you've mischaracterized anything there. Uh, 
Perhaps only the Dahan will blight the land now, but only in times of great need. They have an idea of sort of what the land can take. Uh, they can always, you know, call. Uh, they have they have over the over the centuries uh, uh, sort of socially um, come up with the uh, social role of spirit speakers, somebody who actually uh, is half crazy enough to want to go out and talk to all the spirits because some of them are really dangerous uh, and uh, has sort of the chops to be able to do so and uh, and uh, come back alive and be able to, to facilitate communications. Uh, but because they have these, they can they can speak with their neighbors and, you know, they may do local damage, but there's open lines of communication. Mm. Uh, so blight doesn't tend to happen the way that like you know the average person in our society doesn't tend to accidentally burn down half a town um <laughs> the uh you know not to say it never happens but right. if it does it's regarded as a, as, a, as a tragedy that should have been forestalled right um there is an event card during in which uh dahan had blight to the land yes uh, which uh but that's because you know they're basically uh, re- resorting to that uh through war you know the spirits have a few powers which end up killing dahan as a side effect the 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 Dahan have this like okay we're going to attack which may kill spirits as a side effect, uh, there's sort of that reciprocal nature. But other than that, no, I think you've uh, got spot on what I was going for. Uh, and the Dahan did blight the land when they first showed up. Oh my goodness, yes! Like <laughs> they showed up with a slash and burn agriculture, their own animals, this that the other thing. Uh, the the difference in arc between them and the invaders is that there were many fewer of them, and they didn't have more coming every year. And in their worldview. Once they started seeing a whole bunch of weird stuff happening, one of the thoughts which occurred to them was, hmm, maybe the local spirits are angry at what we're doing. Huh, I wonder why that would be. (laughs) Uh, And so they actually sort of tried to figure that out, which the invaders, you know, the invaders have been explicitly told uh, by the Dahan, like, hey, the spirits are angry with you. You should stop doing this. And like, ah, yes, you know... I'm sure that that's how you see it, Pat, Pat, you know. How quaint. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, the invaders don't really believe in the spirits, or if they do only in a more sort of Christian context, just like... One assumes know. by terror level four they've gotten the picture. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's... Um, the, there's one major power, uh, Manifest Incarnation, which is, uh, which is basically just a spirit showing up and burning the, the fact that it is real into the minds of all be- who behold it. Uh, and, you know, that does a lot of fear. Uh, <laughs> the... Uh, so, what can you tell us about the expansion? What can I tell you about the expansion? Uh, I'm having loads of fun working on it. There's a lot to work on. Uh, it will include new spirits. It will include uh, at least one new adversary. Let's see. Uh, as I mentally review the list of other stuff, uh, it will include other stuff. It is the plan. Is, all of this is, you know, standard caveats, asterisks, etc. Like, you know, if it. You know, the plan right now is that it will include uh, support for five to six players. Uh, not just for the sake of people who want to play with five to six players, I should note, but having extra island boards also means you can get more island variety. Uh, and there's, you know, I'm, I'm experimenting with, you know, maybe are there other things we could do. Uh, having the extra components is nice. Uh, I don't know if you've run it in high level France or England. Sometimes in four player games, you can end up being like, okay, well, you know, we need to start using energy markers to show extra towns or explorers and having the extra invader pieces avoids that, which is nice. But if it comes time to print and it's like, oh, the price of plastic figs just like increased by a factor of 10, then there'll be nothing they can do. And we'll have to say, okay. Well, you could print some multiplier tokens. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, uh, so five to six player support is planned. I am uh, hoping to have uh, new power cards, as you might have inferred by the fact that I was able to talk in minute detail about what I would do with a hypothetical set of minor <laughs> power cards. Um, so yeah, you know, it's sort of uh, 
you know, there'll be probably, you know, a modest selection of new play options. There are two types of token, which are printed on the playmat, which are not on the reverse. Uh, they're on the uh, thematic island board. There's two token types which are on the playmat, which are not on the, the printed boards. Uh, obviously, we have been, you know, playing around with both of those. Uh, it is, you know, up in the air whether either or will be included. Um, you know, I can confidently say that between zero and two of those will be included. <laughs> uh, the... The aim of this expansion is not to overwhelm with new rules. The game does not need a whole lot of new rules. Uh, I think at the moment, uh, I think there's like one new sort of like keyword effect um, and between zero and two new types of token. Uh, and beyond that, most of the things are either, you know, clarifications or, hey, here's the, how the scenario works or... Uh, play options are another thing uh, I've been looking into. Uh, like I mentioned, you know, extra island boards. I've been looking into uh, what is the difficulty increase if you just add an extra board to the island. Mm. Um, the answer to that is it totally depends on how many players you have because adding an extra <laughs> board in a one-player game makes it way harder. In a five in a five-player game, not that much of a difficulty boost. Uh, but I've been playing around with that, and that's but that's a that's not a you have to play with this. That's a hey, here's something you can do if you want. Um, I'm messing around with some of those uh, rules for that sort of thing. Uh, rules for uh, combining adversaries so that you can play with like, all right, you know, let's say that you really enjoy the basic effect of England where they build even if there's, you know, nobody there as long as there's some nearby buildings, but that you're not super jazzed about the high level effects for like, you know, the the like towns and cities get extra health. Uh being able to go, okay, we're going to play against level three England combined with, you know, level two Brandenburg Prussia um, is something we've been playing around with. And uh, that has proved far more tractable than adding extra boards in terms of estimating difficulty on it. Um, mm. So bunch of stuff. It ought to be awesome. Finally, with respect to the expansion, uh, I, I realize this is probably not a question that you, you'll relish answering, but mm -hmm. assuming all goes well, yes, do you have any notion about when this might be able to hit people's hands? Uh, so the the origin the when Paul first announced, uh, yes, we can talk about this. Mm -hmm. uh, the notional plan was for like a Kickstarter over over this summer's Gen Con with delivery by December of 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the primary reason for that long a lead time is art assets. Right. Uh, while, you know, I feel like design-wise, the expansion could po probably be wrapped up by later this year. Mm -hmm. uh, well, at the time I thought that. That was before some other factors. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the amount of art which needs to be commissioned is large, and even with multiple artists, just wrangling it all is a lot. Yes. Uh, since then, the Kickstarter has been pushed back. Current tentative plan is uh, to do it over Essen rather than Gen Con. Uh, I don't know whether, like, how that affects notional delivery time, because mm -hmm. I don't know what their original timetable for art was or how that gets impacted, uh, and that's kind of the critical path uh, for, you know... It's heavy on my mind at the moment because I'm currently in the middle of, you know, in terms of what I'm working on the design of, I am currently hyper-focused on, like, you know, what are the things in this expansion which require art? Let me work on those and only those right now. <laughs> right. Well, uh, well, everything else, you know, I have a bunch of things which are sort of like, okay, this has been tested and needs iterations, but we can't do that right now because art is critical path. So, flogging on that. Uh, so, to answer the original question, like... Uh, late 2019 uh, plus or minus uh, sure. uh, I don't really know <laughs>
So let's talk about that. What are you working on now? What can we look forward to in the future from Eric? Uh, at the moment, I am I am hyper focused on the expansion and on uh, I have another game which it dates back to about the same time as Spirit Island. It is the other game which was sort of uh, furthest along when I had my when I started having kids back five years ago, and so like it and Spirit Island were the two which I stayed working on while everything else basically got dropped. Uh, uh, at the time, I was running uh, uh, demos of it under the the working title Response Lab Alpha uh, at conventions. Uh, the title now looks like it's instead going to be Science or Die, as it's taken a slightly more over-the-top uh, tongue-in-cheek feel. Uh, and it has uh, roared back to life. It went uh, through a year or two where it wasn't getting a lot of development for reasons which are probably too boring to go into. Um, but uh, it is, it's is—it's been signed with Gray Fox Games for a little while, and it is currently now on the, um, okay, time to do, like, you know, final development polish because we are commissioning art, like, let's go. Um, and, you know, there, there's a part of me which is like, oh, you know, I really wish that, you know, said this four, four months ago, but practically, no, four months ago, I was still really busy with, with it. <laughs> but it's, it's uh, you know, the timing, it's not that the timing would have been any more convenient if they've said it, if they'd said it three months ago or three months from now. It's like, oh, no, no, no. Working on the Spirit Island expansion is a fairly long process. And this just happens to have arrived in the middle of it. So I now have two top priority projects at once, um, which is not a great place to be, but the scope of the stuff for, for Science or Die is much smaller because it's, uh, rather than being uh, a large amount of content generation, it's about, uh, you know, polish and like, you know, making sure that the, you know, the numbers are right. Um, I should digress and actually tell you what Science or Die is. Please do. Uh, it is another co-op, but it is otherwise incredibly different from Spirit Island. It is a real-time strategic dexterity co-op. Uh, one of my friends call, calls it the real-time engineering co-op, where you are uh, trying to save the world by curing deadly diseases, which you might have heard of in a co-op before. Uh, <laughs> but, you are, oops, uh, but you are actually physically building the diseases out of wooden, or your, your cures rather, out of wooden blocks. Uh, you sort of, there's a, a, a stage where you, where you design the cure for a given disease using cards which have pictures of blocks which connect to each other in a variety of ways. And then you must take a look at this sprawling structure which you have planned out, and now you have to translate it into reality and hope that it's not too precarious, and that none of your teammates bump the table while you're doing so. Hmm. Uh, it is simultaneous play, turnless real-time. You're playing on a 15-minute clock uh and as you cure diseases all of these diseases are being brewed up by 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 some you know uh, uh ridiculous idiot with a uh, uh, a 3d biological printer in their basement somewhere who manages to have not killed themselves uh by accident much to your chagrin uh and you're trying to figure out what they all have in common basically you know oh, what sort of libraries is this punk using um <laughs> in order uh, so that you can figure out what's in common behind all of these diseases and just create a cure which will work for all of them uh so that you don't need to worry about it anymore you can finally get a coffee break uh, <laughs> so uh, as you cure the diseases you get information uh you get uh, uh, master cure tiles which you can kind of try and arrange to figure out hypotheses about what the disease is uh which are represented by sort of like you know insight icons once you form closed areas so it's got three different sorts of spatial puzzles going on designing uh cures to cure a particular disease and then physically creating a 3d structure out of blocks and then trying to you know do this puzzle of the master cure tiles to uh 
uh, get everything lined up because everything never lines up exactly as you hope. And once you add one new thing in which completes everything perfectly, it introduces new information you could take advantage of if only you do a little bit more research. Um, so it's got all three of these things going on at once. So people who like one type of spatial puzzle more than the other can gravitate towards that. Uh, you have roles which will give you a boost towards one thing or the other. They give you some sort of ability, but uh, they don't dictate. It's not like you can only do this one thing. You're always allowed to work on any of the pieces. It's uh, real-time collaboration. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's uh, frenetic and hectic and sort of uh, uh, adrenaline boosting in a way which is uh, very much uh, uh, a contrast to, to the uh, sort of thinky combo building puzzle of Spirit Island. Uh, and they both do share a, str uh, a strong spatial aspect to them, but that's really mm. uh, the only sign of the shared pedigree, I guess. Um, but I'm super pleased with this, and you get to play with blocks. Um, it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, so I, I am really pleased that this is heading towards production. I've been working on it for a long time, and I, I can't wait to see it out there. Do you have any notion when it might be ready? I think they are looking at a Kickstarter sometime in the next mumble, mumble, mumble months. Uh, I don't know specifically. And after that, like, you know, I believe they're in the middle of doing artwork right now. So I don't know what the timetable would be, but, you know, before Spirit Island, presumably because they don't have the huge art delay mm. um, and because the game is sort of, uh, it's in final design as opposed to, sorry, final development as opposed to sort of like initial design. So, yeah, once I get better word, then I, I will be, you know, sp spreading the word far, like, you know, hey, you know, look for retail release slash Kickstarter slash it to appear magically in your home on date X. <laughs> uh, I suspect there are a lot of people who play board games who fancy themselves uh, potential game designers. I'm not one of those people, but a lot of people have, you know, ideas for games. Sure, yeah. Around that, that, that play lots of games. Do you have any advice for people who are considering, whether may, maybe have, have worked out a couple prototypes or something, but I've, 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 seen you, I've seen you work at game development, and I know that you know how to do it properly. Do you have any advice for people just getting started out? Uh, I do, but it may not be what you're thinking, because uh, the advice is like, if it's fun, make games. Uh, <laughs> focus on, uh, you know, making a game. Are you having fun? Great. Did you make a game which then is a fun experience for friends and family? Fantastic. You're a game designer. Like, you... The, there's a world of difference between I have successfully designed a game and it has created fun experiences in the world and I do this for money and somebody gives me a paycheck for it. Like, and... I meet a lot of people who are like, well, I'm trying to become a game designer. I have this design. It's like, wait, you designed a game. Stop there. Like, <laughs> you're a game designer. Uh, you know, there, there might be other adjectives you want to apply to it. Like, you know, are you a uh, successful game designer? Well, does the game actually play? Do some people enjoy it? Great. You're a successful game designer. Like, you might want to apply professional. Like, okay, you, you know, or, or you know, uh, uh, or world famous. Like, you know, good luck with that one. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but... Game design is something that anybody can do. Doing it well, like anything, requires practice. Um, but if you enjoy doing it, then the practice can be fun. Uh, it will not always be fun, but if the majority of it is fun, then great. You know, have fun doing it. You know, make more games. Uh, there's a lot out now about the uh, there being, like, you know... Um, simultaneously we're sort of in this like golden age where like you know the market for board games is increasing and increasing and increasing but the supply of new board games is increasing even faster than the market so there's this sense of like churn and maybe glut and whatever uh and uh, on the one hand i find that slightly problematic insofar as it makes it hard for people to find the interesting things that are out there 
But beyond that, I think it's great. Like, more people are making games. This is fantastic. Uh, creating games is this lovely uh, combination of a creative mind and analytical mind where you're trying to... Uh, and when I say creative, I don't just mean on theme. I mean also, like, you need to be creative in order to solve many of the uh, problems or challenges caused by the analytical portion of it. And so more people doing this is great. Uh, it's fantastic. Keep on designing games. Uh, find the fun ones. And when you find one which really catches people's eyes on fire, like, you'll know it. They're not going to be shy about telling you this is awesome. Um, they're going to say, you know, this is really fantastic. Uh, there's one of my older designs, which I have backburnered, but I know I'm going to get back to someday because people who playtested it eight years ago keep poking me and saying, how about that game? When am I going to see it again? And it's like, okay, all right. Like, even though I, I look at it and I'm like, okay, that had some structural problems which really need to be addressed, they're not going to let me not get back to it. Thanks again for sitting down with me, Eric. I oh, appreciate it a great deal. Yeah. And uh, I look forward to future work. Thank you for uh, constantly flattering me and uh, <laughs> saying such great things. About, I mean, Spirit Island has been more than nearly any other game I have, a labor of love. And so uh, hearing people say how much they enjoy it is always uh, a real boost. I love it. It's fantastic. Uh, it uh, makes all the hard work worthwhile. Congratulations. Thank you so much. So that'll do it for this week. Thank you for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read absolutely everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we possibly can. Thanks once again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. See you next week. Man, that interview was... Wow. That part where he said that thing about that other thing, that was amazing. I agree entirely. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Goodbye. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>